Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. All right, I uh, turn to number 27 in your songbook. Come thou almighty king.
So let's review everything. Genesis 1. You think I'm kidding. Turn to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them on the earth. And so it was. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. You getting a feel for this yet? good. The creation of the earth, good. It was all good. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He made stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Good. Everything God was doing on the planet and everything on the planet was just Good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which waters swarm after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply upon the earth. 
And that was the evening and the morning of the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts on the earth after their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Are you getting the picture here? Everything that good God was doing was by virtue of the fact that he is a good God. It was then ipso facto good, constantly good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle on all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, gender binary. Just thought I'd point that out. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed It shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird in the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. It was just very good. And there was the evening and there was the morning of the sixth day. Chapter two of the book of Genesis recounts that same story with more detail. Turn to chapter 3, because in chapter 3, for the first time, we're going to see that things went from good, I mean good, just all good. You saw how often it was good. God just kept saying, good, everything I'm doing is good. I like what I'm doing. I approve of my own plan. I'm just good. And in chapter 3, starting at verse 17, you know all about the fall. You know that God ultimately has to curse the man and the woman and the serpent as a result of their disobedience against him. Starting in verse 17, then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. So when men fell, a whole lot more happened to the planet than just it was now the habitation of bad men. The planet itself fell under a curse. The ground of the earth itself fell under a curse from God. Cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor, you shall eat from it all the days of your life. Can I get a witness, men? The reason you have to work hard is because Adam sinned and God put a curse on the ground, on the earth. Verse 18 tells us both thorns and thistles grew up from it. And yet you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. 
because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. So in those first couple of chapters of Genesis, what we see is God creating everything, and it's just good. (laughs) It's just good. And then man rebels, and earth itself falls under a curse from God, demonstrated by the fact that thorns and thistles grew from the earth, demonstrated by the fact that men had to now work by the toil of their brow in order to even get food. Everything changed. It went from good to corruption. Anybody here familiar with the second law of thermodynamics? Go ahead. You got it, right? That is such a good guess. It's completely wrong, <laughs> but that was such a good guess. Yeah. Yes? I think it's energy always flows from a hot object to a cold object. Very, very close. The state of entropy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That the entire universe, scientists have figured this out, that the entire universe is in a constant state of entropy, which means, in common language, we get worse, not better. Everything wears down. It doesn't wear up. Amen. (laughs) Amen. The older you get, you don't get springier. You, You don't suddenly achieve the ability to run faster and jump higher the older you get. The older you get, the more creaky you get. The more your body rebels against you. The reason that there is an entire industry in America of warranties is because everything you buy from your house to your car to every appliance to every piece of furniture, it's all going to break down, and you know it's going to break down. Has anybody replaced anything lately? I mean, other than a hip? Has anybody (laughs) replaced just an appliance lately? The reason you had to replace it was because it ran down. Everything on the planet runs down. Okay, now that proves that the second law of thermodynamics validates Genesis 1 through 3. Because in Genesis 1 through 3, we're told that everything was made good. Everything was fine. And then because of Adam's sin, because of Adam's rebellion, everything was under a curse, and everything has been running down and getting worse ever since. How bad has it been getting? Well, when Paul writes to the Romans, starting in Romans 8, verse 18, he talks a little bit about the fact that the entire creation is groaning for its redemption. Not just human beings, not just animals, but the creation, the trees, the wind, the rain, the whole of it is crying to God in this constant state of moaning and groaning, waiting for the day of the new heaven and the new earth. And that's really what we're here to talk about today, is the new heaven and the new earth, the necessity of a new heaven and a new earth, restoring it once again to what it was originally when God made it, back when it was good, good, good. Is there anybody willing to say that the world and the people on the world 
and the stuff on the world. Is there anybody willing to say that everywhere you look and everything you see, it's just good, good, good? No, there's so much that we can look at now and go, that's just bad. That's just wrong. That's just sinful. That's just decaying. That's just running down. Here's the way Paul put it. I mentioned Romans 8. I'm going to start reading at verse 18. Paul says, for I consider that the suffering of this present time, by the way, did Paul just admit that in this present age they're suffering? It's what he said. And yet he considers the suffering of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Hallelujah, Hallelujah, good news, good, good, good. But what that tells you is our current state isn't our final state. And that the final state is better than the current state because the current state is getting worse. The future state, all glorious, all good. The glory that will be revealed to us. Verse 10 says, For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The eagerly waiting creation Paul there gives human characteristic and human emotion to all of creation and says the creation itself is looking forward to that day of the revealing of the sons of God, the final restoration of the planet that is yet to come. For the creation, the whole of creation, was subjected to futility. From the moment that God put the curse on the ground, from that moment, the whole of creation was subjected to this futility, this running down, this failure. Not willingly, says Paul, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Okay, so what is Paul really getting at here? What is the proof positive of sin? Death. Everybody dies. That's what Paul says. The wages of sin is death. If you want to claim you're not sinful, it's easy to prove. Just don't die. (laughs) If you die, that is proof positive that you were under the curse of sin. Because the wage of sin is death. And the whole of creation is participating in that cycle of death right now. I don't care if you're talking about a bird or a salamander or a giraffe or a platypus. They die. Some of them die out completely, like the platypuses. Is that the plural of platypus? I don't know. The platypi. I have no idea. They all die because the entirety of the creation is under a curse. And so Paul says that the whole creation was subjected to this futility, not willingly, but because of God, the one who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption. 
I look forward to the day when I'm set free from my slavery to corruption. I know I'm corrupt. You know how I know it? I'm stuck in this body. And I get up every day. I wake up in parts now. I don't wake up all at once. Bits of my body wake up at separate times from the rest of my body. I I know that I'm getting older. I'm getting slower. It's becoming more difficult. That is all part of the corruption that is a result of sin. Now, I see that personally in me. I experience that personally. Paul says the whole of creation is looking forward to the day when it is going to be delivered from its corruption. The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the creation itself is looking forward to the children of God, the sons of God on the planet. That time when the planet is going to be filled with righteousness and holiness. The reason that the whole of creation is looking forward to our redemption and ultimate recreation into our heavenly state is because the creation is also going to be redeemed the same way that we are redeemed and the creation can't wait. And I can't wait. I can't wait until the day that I get the new body. Oh, what a great day that's going to be. And according to Paul here, the whole of creation is on my side. Because when I get redeemed, it gets redeemed. So there is this promise. There is this forward looking for the whole creation that one day it is going to be taken out of its slavery to corruption. And it is ultimately going to be glorified along with the children of God. Verse 22 says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. I don't think that together is Paul's way of saying the whole of creation and all the parts and pieces of it. I think Paul is saying the same way that we groan, the same way that we have the difficulties of this life, the same way that we get sick, the same way that we struggle, The same way that life gets hard on us, it's hard for the whole of creation. And the whole of creation is groaning within itself, looking forward to the day when God is going to recreate it. Make the better version of it. Verse 23, and not only that. I mean, you would think that was enough. But not only that. But we also, we ourselves, having that first fruit of the Spirit, having the Holy Spirit of God within us, quickening us, reviving us, bringing us to a knowledge of the things of God, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons of God, which Paul then defines as the redemption of our bodies. Am I the only one groaning in here? (laughs) 
Because I'm looking forward to that day of, as Paul says, redemption in body, soul, and spirit. Complete and utter redemption. Not just partial redemption. Not just the knowledge that redemption is coming, but my faith becoming sight in that day when I am finally in a glorified body, a body on par with what Christ himself had that was as comfortable eating fish next to the Sea of Galilee as it was going through a rock or going through a closed door or traversing the distance between here and heaven and sitting at the right hand of God. That's the kind of state you are promised in your future. And the more you get a hold of that, and the more you look at yourself right now, the more you groan, the more you hope, the more you look forward to that day, and all of creation is looking forward to it with you. So, what have we seen so far this morning in our review of everything? See, it turns out I really was reviewing everything. What we've seen so far is God made the whole of creation, and it was good. It was just good. And then men rebelled, and men sinned. Now, by the way, that was all part of the plan of God. None of that happened by mistake. The fall in the garden was part of God's plan to glorify his son, who is identified in the book of Revelation as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So if he is already the lamb slain, then there had to be a people who needed him to be their redeemer. And there had to be a creation That would be redeemed by him so that all glory would be to him so that every knee would bow so that every tongue would confess that he is Lord of everything all the time. So this is not a mistake. God knows what he's doing. So you are in the process of living these earthly terrestrial lives and going through this corruption right now so that you will recognize the astounding grace and glory of God that is going to give you this glorious future. You wouldn't really truly fully appreciate it if you didn't do some groaning first. So everything was good. Man sinned. The earth was cursed. Paul tells us during his time that the whole of creation is looking forward to the day of it being redeemed from its corruption. And then there's these promises in the Old Testament. These promises that satisfy the groaning of the entire creation. There is this promise of a new heaven and a new earth. And along the way with a new heaven and a new earth, there is a promise of a new us. Micah, if you would, look up 2 Corinthians 5.17. You're going to read it to us in just a moment. There is this wonderful Greek word, kahinos. And what it means, what is translated is new. But when we think new, we oftentimes will see new and improved. And that's not what this word means. This word means qualitatively New. Not a reformation of the old, not a rubber stamp of the old, 
but in fact something genuinely new. It is on par with the new covenant. We've talked about the old covenant and the new covenant a lot in the past. Once we finish the book of Revelation, we're going to spend more time talking about the old and the new covenant. The new covenant is not a recapitulation of the old covenant. It is a qualitatively new covenant because the old covenant simply could not achieve what was necessary, which was the utter, complete redemption of God's people. So there was a new covenant made. That same idea carries over into the fact that we, by that new covenant, are made into new people. Here, read it for us, Micah. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. New creature. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. He's not a reformation of what he used to be. Instead, he's utterly not what he used to be. And he is made into a new creature. And then that concept keeps expanding all the way out to what the creation is looking for, the appearance of the sons of God. The new heavens, the new earth starts being promised in Psalm 102. In Psalm 102, verse 25, we read, Of old you, God, founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment. And like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. Okay, so all the way back in David's time, he's writing about the fact that God is not going to just leave the earth, the creation, in the state it is currently in. It is going to be changed, dramatically changed utterly changed, made qualitatively new. Isaiah picks up that idea in Isaiah 51.6. Lift up your eyes to the sky and then look to the earth beneath for the sky will vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will not wane. Isaiah 65, 7 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Isaiah 66, 22 says, For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure before me. In the New Testament, Peter picks it up and tells us that there's going to be an utter destruction of this planet as it is now and the heavens as they are now. The corruption of this creation is one day going to be destroyed and made new. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. This is 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be found out. Since all of these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for 
and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, so big picture. Make the planet good. It's all good. It's good. Man falls. Sin happens. Planet is cursed. Planet falls into corruption. God promises repeatedly in the Old and New Testament, it's not going to stay that way. Not only am I going to redeem people, and when I redeem them, they in Christ will be a new creation But the whole of creation, the earth, the heavens, the cosmos, everything I have created that I have cursed because of man's sin, when man is ultimately redeemed from his sinfulness, the whole of creation is also going to be redeemed so that there's no more sin in God's creation so that righteousness dwells in God's creation. New heaven and new earth is promised repeatedly in the Bible. That was my introduction. Turn to Revelation 21. The whole reason that we took that review of everything was to show that this is not a brand new concept. When we read it in Revelation 21, if you're only reading the book of Revelation, that feels like, oh, okay, this is a new idea. Not in the least. It is a promise that has been promised Old and New Testament, and it is a promise that has been necessitated by the fall in the garden. This is something that has been forthcoming through the entire history of humanity, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, qualitatively new. Chapter 21, verse 1 of Revelation, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Now we know why it was necessary that that first earth and that first heaven pass away. Because it's corrupt. Because it is groaning under the curse of God, looking forward to the day of its utter redemption. The first heaven and the first earth pass away and there was no longer any sea. Okay, now that is dramatically different than the planet as it stands right now. The planet right now is huge bodies of water. And then no more sea? Okay, that is why, that is one of the evidences of why I keep saying it's going to be qualitatively new. It's going to be qualitatively different than the planet that we're on right now. As we continue reading about the planet and we start reading the physicality of the New Jerusalem, which we'll get into next week, we're going to see that New Jerusalem is a cube-like city that rises up so high that it goes well past what we consider the stratosphere. So if you've got an apartment on the top floor, good luck breathing. Unless, of course, there's a new heavens. Unless, of course, the heavens expand out beyond what we currently know unless the earth itself can support such a structure. So qualitatively different, qualitatively new. I saw the holy city, says verse 2, 
I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, we have to talk about a few things in there. Turn to Ezekiel 8 for a minute, because I want to continue this contrast between corruption and newness. Ezekiel chapter 8. I'm going to start at verse 1. It came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell on me there, And then I looked, and behold, a likeness as the appearance of a man, from his loins and downward there was the appearance of fire, and from his loins and upward the appearance of brightness, like the appearance of glowing metal. And he stretched out the form of a hand, and caught me by a lock of my head, picked me up by my hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven. And brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. Okay, so what's happening here is that Ezekiel is being shown the current state of Jerusalem, including things in private that he would not otherwise know, that he could not otherwise see. And in a vision, he is going to see the utter corruption of Jerusalem. Verse 4, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw in the plain. And he said to me, son of man, raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north, and behold, to the north of the altar gate was the idol of jealousy at its entrance. The children of Israel had set up idols in Jerusalem in their gates. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here, that I should be far from my sanctuary, that God himself should be sitting in his sanctuary, should be honored and worshiped in his sanctuary. And here is God saying, and I am far away from my sanctuary as they worship and sacrifice to these idols. But yet you will see still greater abominations. And then he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall and behold an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here. So I entered and looked. Behold, every form of creeping thing and beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved in the wall all around. And standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel with Jehazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each man with his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising, in other words, They're worshiping and doing obeisance to these idols that they have made, idols in the forms of creeping things and beasts and detestable things. Verse 12, and he said to me, son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? 
each man in the room of his own carved images. For they say, the Lord does not see us. Yahweh has forsaken the land. And he said to me, yet you will see even greater abominations which are still being committed. So then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the south. And behold, women were sitting there and weeping for Tammuz. And he said to me, do you see this, son of man? Yet you will see still greater abominations than these. And then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And the court at the entrance of the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar There were 25 men with their backs to the temple of Yahweh and their faces toward the east, and they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. They were worshiping the sun. They were worshiping the creation rather than worshiping God in his temple. And he said to me, do you see this son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they have committed here that they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly for behold they are putting the twig to their own nose therefore I indeed shall deal with them in my wrath my eye will have no pity nor shall I spare them and though they cry in my ears with a loud voice yet I shall not listen to them go over to chapter 11 for just a minute I'm going to start reading at verse 14 Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from Yahweh. This land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I had removed them far away into all the nations, and though I have scattered them among the countries, Yet I was a sanctuary, a hiding place for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. Therefore said I, thus says the Lord God, I shall gather you from the peoples and I shall assemble you from all the countries among which you have been scattered and I shall give you the land of Israel. And when they come here, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. And I shall give them one heart. And they shall have a new spirit within them. And I shall take out the heart of stone out of their flesh. And I will give them a heart of flesh. So that they may walk in my statutes. And keep my ordinances. And do them. And then they will be my people. And I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and their abominations. I shall bring their conduct down on their own heads declares the Lord. And then the cherubim lifted up their wings and the wheels beside them and the glory of the Lord Israel hovered over them and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain to the east of the city and the spirit lifted me up again and brought me by vision to the spirit to the exiles of Chaldee. Okay, why did I read all that? I'm sure at this moment you're saying, Jim, interesting, why'd you read all that? Because Jerusalem itself is corrupt. Jerusalem itself is provably corrupt. God takes Ezekiel, his prophet, and shows the deep corruption. A corruption that God himself likens to prostitution. 
that God himself says, Israel is my wife, and she is committing these harlotries with all of her gods. Therefore, I'm going to scatter them. I'm going to drive them out of Jerusalem because all of Jerusalem has become so corrupt that God himself abandons his own temple. That's how corrupt it is. And I saw the holy city new, qualitatively new, qualitatively different. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. In other words, she goes from utter corruption, prostitution, idolatry, into being the very wife of Christ. When we read the description next week, you're going to be astounded at the beauty that God gives her and that God would betroth her to his own son is astounding considering how corrupt, how filthy, how idolatrous she once was. And how does he make the difference between what she was to what she's going to be? He makes her new. All I'm driving at here is whether we're talking new birth, whether we're talking new covenant, whether we're talking new heaven, new earth, new creation, whether we're talking new Jerusalem, all of these things are qualitatively different than they once were. And they are taken from utter and complete depravity and corruption to a newness that makes them appropriate to be in God's presence and to be the habitation of a thrice holy God. It's astounding. Okay, so Christ said, I'm going to make new people. Those that are in Christ are new, as Micah read. How are they made new? Well, there is a spirit put in them, and that spirit is a holy spirit. Can you be said to be holy? No. I'm surprised I only got no out of a couple of you. There should have been a resounding no, and you should have all pointed at each other. (laughs) No, there's just no way. You are part of this corrupt creation. You are part of this fallen humanity. You are part of the curse of death that is on all of us. You are part of the scientific entropy that is the entire creation. But God, in his astounding grace, put a spirit in you that is a holy spirit. And that is decidedly different than you. So different, in fact, that it renews you. It makes you qualitatively different. And that is the same way that he is making a new covenant. That is the same way that he is making a new heaven. That is the same way that he's making a new earth. That is the same way that he's making a new Jerusalem. And what I hope you see so far is that everything that's made new here at the beginning of Revelation 21 is described in the Bible as being nothing but sinful and bad and corrupt. And sinful, bad corruption cannot improve itself. It takes the holiness the righteousness, the power, the might, the strength, the willingness, the grace of God to make you new. And he's doing it 
for the whole of his creation. That's a really sovereign God. In Hebrews 11, which is classically called the heroes of faith passage, the writer of Hebrews goes through a series of Old Testament figures and heroes, and he recounts their exploits and says that they did these things by faith. That is the uniting factor between all of the people who are listed in Hebrews 11, that they all did what they did by faith in God. Now, when he starts talking about Abraham, you may recall what Abraham actually did. Uh, Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees, which means that Abraham himself did not have faith in Yahweh, was not looking for Yahweh. God came to him, took him out from his family, from his household, and said, start walking. I'll let you know when you get there. (laughs) So he takes Lot, his nephew, takes his servants, takes his wife, takes off. He ends up in the land that we currently know as Canaan, Israel, and God says, I'm going to give this land to you and to your descendants in perpetuity. It's yours forever. Okay, so what did Abraham actually do? He heard what God said. He responded to what God said, and he started walking, looking for the place where God was ultimately going to settle him and his descendants forever. By faith, Abraham, Hebrews 11, 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien, as a sojourner, In this land that he was promised, as in a foreign land, he was dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, who were fellow heirs of that same promise, that same Abrahamic covenant. So why was he willing to do that? Why was he willing to walk? Why was he willing to live in a land that was not his, and yet he knew that God had promised it to him? And he raised his children there, Isaac and Jacob. Why did he do that? Because he was looking for a city which has foundations, rigor, something you can count on, something you can stand on, something you can trust your entire future to. He was looking for a city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. He wasn't just looking for a place where he could put tents up. He wasn't just looking for the land of Canaan. He was looking for permanent Jerusalem. And so far in world history, there's been no permanent Jerusalem. But the promise is there's going to be a permanent Jerusalem, and then God is going to dwell among his people. This is astounding. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, is among men. And he shall, exact same word, tabernacle, and he shall dwell among them. And for all those promises that we have seen all the way through the Bible, 
of the day coming when God says, I will be their God, they will be my people. He keeps promising that. He keeps throwing that promise out there. Someday, they're going to be my people. Someday, I'm going to change them. Someday, I'm going to dwell among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That finally happens at the coming of the new Jerusalem, when God is dwelling among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no longer any death, can I get an oh yeah? Oh yeah. yeah. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying. Anybody cried lately? Anybody moaned lately? And no more pain. Because the first things have passed away. That's the theme of all this that we're reading. Because those first things, those corrupt things, those sinful things, those depraved things, those cursed things, that's all gone. And God is making things qualitatively new. I got to admit, if I wake up one day without pain, I'm going to think, well, that's new. <laughs> okay, something new happened there. If I go through the rest of my life and I don't cry or mourn, anybody here lost a loved one? Seen somebody sick that they, you just, and there's nothing you can do about it and you just mourn over it. It will be so wonderful when there's no more mourning, when there's no more crying, when there's no more death. That's new. Everything about life will be qualitatively New. Okay, so here is the promise in verse 3 that God is going to tabernacle among his people. That is not a brand new idea either. That is an idea that has been promised to Israel time and time and time again. Leviticus 26, all the way back in the Levitical law, it is promised. Leviticus 26, starting at verse 9. So I will turn toward you and make you multiply and make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will confirm my covenant with you. And you shall eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you will be my people I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and I made you stand upright. Okay, so there's the promise of God. Someday I will dwell among you. Someday I will be among you. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will confirm the everlasting covenant with you. Can that be said about God and Israel right now? Am I boring you? No. Ezekiel 37, 24. This is the promise that's to come. This, this is at the end of Ezekiel and his dry bones and the hip bone connecting to the whatever bone. I mean, that, I was going to say knee bone, and I just don't even know if that's anatomically correct. I have no idea. I don't. 
That's at the end of the Valley of Dry Bones. And then Ezekiel has two sticks in his hands. One stick is for the house of Judah. One stick is for the house of Israel, the house of Joseph, the northern tribes. There's one stick in his hand representing, according to God, God interprets it, that he's going to make them one nation again. Ezekiel 37, starting at verse 24, and my servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd, and they will all walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them, and I will multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Okay, that's satisfied in what we're reading in Revelation 21 that God is actually going to tabernacle among them, that he's going to be among his people, and that he will dwell among them. They will be his people. He will be their God forever. So again, these things that we're reading in Revelation are satisfactions of promises that God has been making to his people, to Israel specifically, to his son, to his son's bride. He has made those promises all the way through the Bible. All we're reading about in Revelation is the culmination, the satisfaction of all those promises, including the promise that he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes And there will no longer be any death. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Because the first things, the former things, the corrupted things have all passed away. Because he is going to make everything qualitatively new. Here, let me end with this. This is Isaiah 35.3. The promise to come that is being satisfied in what I just read to you. Strengthen the limp hands and give courage to the knees that are stumbling. Say to those with an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come and he will save you. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongues of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah, in the desert. And then the scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground will become springs of water. And in the haunt of jackals, there will be a resting place. Grass will become reeds and rushes. And the roadway will be there, a highway, and it is going to be called a highway of holiness. The unclean will not pass by on it, and it will not be for him who walks in that way, and ignorant fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up upon it. 
These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of Yahweh will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. And everlasting gladness will be upon their heads. And they will attain delight and gladness. And their sorrow and their sighing will flee away. Back in Isaiah's time, God gave him that prophecy. He wrote it. The children of Israel have known it ever since. That there is a day coming when they're going to attain delight and gladness. And that their sorrow and that their sighing is finally going to be utterly done away with. Because the old things are done away with and everything is made new. That day is still coming. That day of utterly complete newness is coming. All the things that we're living through right now are old, are corrupt, are fallen. There's a much better day coming. And so I say again, as I say so often, run to Christ. Because he is the source of all that newness. And as wonderful as it sounds to someday have no more pain, no more misery, the same book of Revelation talks about people who fall under the eternal punishment of God. You don't want to be there. You want to be part of all things new. And as Micah read, if you're in Christ, all things are new. We're going to pick up there next week and continue that theme of newness and talk about the bride that is coming down out of heaven who is made from her whoredom, from her filth, from her idolatry. She is made beautiful and white and virginal and appropriate to be called the wife of God. What a beautiful image. Any corrupt people here today? One day, God promises you newness. And it doesn't get better than new. I'm done. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.